This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Sponsored by Amazon, Audible, HostGator, Gamefly, and supporters of independent media like you. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 52 of the podcast. We don't have any new Patreon patrons or members, but I do have to thank Loot Crate, who is a sponsor of the Humanist Report. If you head over to the link in our description box, you can sign up for Loot Crate, and anytime you do that, you support the podcast. Anyways, uh, today we have a ton of topics to go over in this episode. So I'll provide you with a summary of the Republican National Convention. Also, uh, WikiLeaks has released thousands of hacked emails from the DNC and Hillary Clinton. So I will definitely talk about that. And also, I will discuss the implications of Trump's remarks that he would abandon NATO allies and also talk about how his VP pick immediately backfired on him. Also, Fox News head Roger Ailes is stepping down. And additionally, in this episode, I'll talk about how Cornell West decided to endorse Jill Stein over Hillary Clinton. Now, also, on the topic of the Green Party, Dan Savage launched an attack against them a couple of months ago, but they decided to finally attack him back. So I'll discuss that. Also, documentary filmmaker Michael Moore made a prediction as to who he thinks will win the presidential election. Uh, And I will talk about whether or not I think he's right or wrong. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. I hope you guys stick around and enjoy the whole thing. Just days before the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, WikiLeaks is exposing the Democratic Party for the frauds that they really are. So, for example, Hillary Clinton claimed that she never sent or received classified information. Uh, The DNC maintained that it was entirely neutral throughout the primary process, and they never tried to slander Bernie Sanders. Well, new leaks from WikiLeaks proves that that is a complete lie. Now, about a month ago, I told you guys about how Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, stated that he has a bombshell to release that would potentially get Hillary Clinton indicted, but he didn't believe she actually would be indicted because the FBI would try to cull favor with her for her potential administration. Now, he turned out to be right. So, when it comes to the question of whether or not Hillary Clinton actually received any classified emails, there are over 23,000 emails that show that they did in fact contain classified markings. So, for example, if you click on an email here, that email will load up and any paragraph that starts with a C here, well, that is a classified paragraph. Now, almost all of this is classified. This portion is not classified right here. This C here, you know, it's very conspicuous. Uh, James Comey maintains that she did not know what this meant, but wouldn't you at least ask about it? Well, of course not, because you're Hillary Clinton, and, you know, this is a defense that you can get away with. Now, when it comes to the actual DNC leak, they leaked almost 20,000 emails from the DNC's email database. Now, what you can do here is you can search for any term. You could search for Bernie, uh, and so much emails will come up. So there's a lot in here that's pretty damaging. I haven't gone through all of them, obviously, because 20,000, <laughs> that's a lot. However, um, there is some stuff in here that is incredibly telling. So there's direct evidence of media collusion with the DNC as political writer Kenneth Vogel sent an advanced copy of one of his articles to the DNC communications director, Luis Miranda, although he didn't actually change much of the story. Well, this is a violation of journalistic ethics, and it shows that the DNC 
asked people about it within the DNC and said that they can kind of push back on certain portions of the story. Now, communications director Luis Miranda was trying to create a narrative that Bernie Sanders' campaign was a mess. Now, there's also an email where DNC officials were trying to figure out Bernie Sanders' religion and had speculated that he was an atheist and wanted to attack him for that. Now, let me just remind you, this is from the DNC. They claimed that they were neutral the whole time, but they're looking for things to attack Bernie Sanders on, someone who was running for the nomination in their party. So this is really, really a bombshell. Now, one email revealed uh, that they were outraged at the fact that Mika Brzezinski asked Debbie Wasserman Schultz to step down and they wanted an apology and Debbie Wasserman Schultz wanted to call Phil Griffin, the president of MSNBC, to get her to apologize. Now, Debbie Wasserman Schultz contacted Chuck Todd about something she wanted to discuss with him pertaining to Mika's comments and asked him to contact DNC communications director Luis Miranda and he questioned whether or not it's a good idea to do that since obviously it's collusion. Now, they even talked badly about Senator Claire McCaskill who endorsed Hillary Clinton and they said that she has no backbone since she defended Bernie supporters uh, during the Nevada debacle uh, from the DNC's lies that chairs were thrown and that they were getting violent. Now, another email shows that they certainly weren't neutral and that Bernie's campaign manager is good at deflecting criticism and that they needed to counter this. Now, you also have Debbie Wasserman Schultz referring to Jeff Weaver, Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, as an ass. You have Debbie Wasserman Schultz sharing talking points about the criticisms she's received about not remaining neutral and about the limited debate schedule. Now also in one email, communications director Luis Miranda mocked Bernie Sanders for wanting to have a debate in California, replying LOL in response to an article someone emailed to him when Bernie Sanders talked about wanting a debate with Hillary Clinton in California after she agreed to it. Emails also show the reaction to the resolution that Maine passed to abolish superdelegates. So DNC officials refer to it as lunacy and that Maine has no jurisdiction to do so. Now, there's also just general shit-talking about Bernie Sanders. Again, since there's 20,000 emails to go through, I can't go through them all. So if you see anything that's important, please tweet them to me at Humanist Report on Twitter. Link me to them, screen cap them, whatever you can do to get them to me. And I will make an additional video covering them if I see anything that is pertinent to this election. Now, also, I want to send a thank you to Kenny Couch, who is at Redneck Blue Vote on Twitter, and Zaid Jelani from The Intercept for digging up a lot of these more important emails. So this revealed everything that we were complaining about throughout the election cycle. And what did they tell us? They told us that we were conspiracy theorists, that we were getting out our tinfoil hats for nothing, and that the DNC was in fact neutral. The Democratic National Committee are, is neutral when it comes to this primary. Why the fuck you lying? You literally tried to dig up dirt on Bernie Sanders. You literally tried to attack him for being an atheist, which is just morally reprehensible, by the way, because being an atheist is not bad. In fact, I'd say that it's good to get representation to the atheist community since we have none in Congress. <laughs> My question to the viewers is, how excited are you now uh, to hear them speak about party unity at the DNC convention in Philadelphia in the next couple of days. Are you excited? No. They're going to cry about party unity. They're going to cry about how dangerous and scary Donald Trump is. <sighs> What we found now is just the tip of the iceberg. We do not know the extent of bias that we'll find throughout all 20,000 of these emails, but best believe that we're going to dig through it and we're going to find whatever's left. Uh, but what we found already in the first day 
is so disturbing but not surprising. So why does this qualify Hillary Clinton to be the Democratic nominee if the process was inherently unfair, if the process was inherently undemocratic? How could she be the party's nominee? Why is it that we have to fall in line? Why is it that Bernie Sanders had to endorse her after all of this? It's not fair. It's absolutely not fair. And it's also unethical. The fact that there's media collusion and whatnot. You know, all I can say is Jill 2016, because I refuse to support a party that condones this type of behavior. I refuse to fall in line after being abused throughout the course of the primary. I've said this before in a previous episode, but if you could rehold this election under fair conditions where name recognition was equal between Bernie and Hillary, where the debate schedule wasn't limited, where there wasn't mass election fraud, it'd probably be the case that Bernie would have won. So in my opinion, this should disqualify Hillary Clinton from being the Democratic nominee, because this is just not fair. How can you expect voters to fall in line? How can you, can you even ask for party unity after this is revealed. Now, have they said anything yet? At the time of me posting this video, we have zero response from anyone at the DNC, from Hillary Clinton's campaign. Who knows? And, uh, you know, we don't know if they're even going to mention it or acknowledge it. The Democratic National Committee are, is neutral when it comes to this primary. The Democratic National Committee are, is neutral when it comes to this primary. So I've got a huge update for you guys regarding the DNC email leak. So first is that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, current DNC chair, has announced her resignation. And in an official statement, she says, I know that electing Hillary Clinton as our next president is critical for America's future. I look forward to serving as a surrogate for her campaign in Florida and across the country to ensure her victory going forward. The best way for me to accomplish those goals is to step down as party chair at the end of this convention. Now, I don't know what type of surrogate you think you'll make, but I can guarantee that all of the dislike and the distaste that you've garnered among your own party can assure that you will not be a good surrogate. So Hillary Clinton would be smart to distance herself from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. However, you guys will probably not be surprised to know that Hillary Clinton has promoted her and she will now serve as honorary campaign chair of Clinton's campaign. So she's kind of going from one job to another. And although she's just the honorary chair of her campaign, again, Hillary Clinton is choosing to do the worst thing possible politically, and she doesn't care about the optics, she doesn't care how bad this looks. So, you shouldn't be surprised by this, honestly. Now, DNC Vice Chair Donna Brazil will be serving as the interim chair through the election, and as of yesterday, she claims to have apologized to Bernie Sanders. She states, First of all, as Vice Chair, I went over yesterday to see the Sanders campaign, and I apologized. I think the allegations in the emails, the insensitivity, the stupidity needs to be addressed. We are going to address it. Now, Donna Brazil, uh, overall, she is a lot more self-aware, a lot more charismatic than Debbie Wasserman Schultz. However, she is a CNN commentator. And as we all know, CNN's nickname is Clinton News Network because they are fully in the tank for Hillary Clinton. Now, credit where credit is due. They have been reporting on this. Jake Tapper, I think, was very objective in his reporting. However, we know that the parent company of CNN, Time Warner, is one of Hillary Clinton's largest donors. So I'm a little bit skeptical, and you guys should be skeptical, but we can give Donna Brazil a chance for now. 
Now, Bernie has officially responded, and he states, I told you long time ago that the DNC was not running a fair operation, that they were supporting Secretary Clinton, so what I suggested to be true six months ago turned out to be true. Now, prior to Debbie Wasserman Schultz's announcement of her resignation, Bernie Sanders stated that she should step down. Here's a video of that. I think she should resign, uh, period, and I think we need a new chair uh, who is going to lead us in a very different direction that is taking on the billionaire class and fighting for an agenda that works for working families. Now, Bernie Sanders has also responded to the attack on his presumed atheistic beliefs. He says, quote, I am not an atheist, but aside from all of that, it is an outrage and sad that you would have people in important positions in the DNC trying to undermine my campaign. It goes without saying, the function of the DNC is to represent all of the candidates to be fair and even-minded. Now, we all know that was not the case. Now, as for the individual that made these remarks about Bernie Sanders' religion and tried to attack him for it, DNC CFO Brad Marshall, he has since publicly apologized to Bernie Sanders, saying in a Facebook post, I deeply regret that my insensitive emotional emails would cause embarrassment to the DNC, the chairwoman, and all of the staffers who worked hard to make the primary a fair and open process. Yeah, right. The comments expressed do not reflect my beliefs, nor do they reflect the beliefs of the DNC and its employees. I apologize to those I offended. Except they directly reflect your beliefs because... That's your beliefs. You typed the email, did you not? Did someone, you know, hold your hands and guide you into typing out that you want to attack Bernie Sanders for his atheistic beliefs, potentially? No, absolutely not. So that is your beliefs. So uh, this is a really dim-witted apology, although I am glad that you apologized and I will give you credit for that. But come on, man, we're not stupid. You're not fooling anyone. Now, finally, Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook has responded to the DNC leak, and this is what he had to say. Experts are telling us that Russian state actors broke into the DNC, stole these emails, and are releasing these emails for the purpose of helping Donald Trump. I don't think it's coincidental that these emails are being released on the eve of our convention here. This isn't my assertion. This is what experts are telling us. This is further evidence the Russian government is trying to influence the outcome of the election. Now, <laughs> regardless if this is true or false, notice what they did there. They completely disregarded the merits of what was in the emails. So instead of actually taking responsibility for the collusion between the DNC and the media, the DNC and Clinton's campaign, and the just complete unfairness, well, they're just going to blame it on Russia. Well, how about rather than placing blame on Russia and fear-mongering about Donald Trump yet again... How about you actually take responsibility and you acknowledge that Bernie Sanders supporters are rightfully outraged because they were cheated, because the process was unfair, and you guys had the audacity to call us conspiracy theorists throughout the entirety of the primary process, and now that this DNC email is leaked, guess who's spreading conspiracies? It's Clinton's campaign that it was Russia and that they're only trying to help elect Donald Trump. I don't know if that's true. Uh, there's no evidence that that's true as of yet, but I don't care if that's true. What we're looking for is for you guys to address the substance of what's in the emails. Do you have no comment? You seriously have no comment on the collusion between the DNC and Clinton's campaign? On how the DNC was trying to deliberately attack Bernie Sanders to the betterment of Hillary Clinton's campaign? You don't have anything to say?
And yet you're going to go there tomorrow and call for party unity. Come on, man. Now, in a developing story, there is evidence that Twitter is censoring tweets pertaining to the DNC leak hashtag. So on Friday, the hashtag actually disappeared completely for about 20 minutes before coming back. And some users are still reporting that it is not showing up for them. Now, Facebook has also been accused of censoring news surrounding the DNC leak, but it could reportedly be attributed to their automatic spam filtering system, which sometimes gives them false positives, according to Twitter user Swift on Security. Now, Facebook's team has claimed that the issue has been fixed. So that's basically all of the news for now, but there are still plenty coming out. So please check the description box because I will continue to update it as more news breaks. But the question is, now that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is resigning, now what? Are we just supposed to fall in line after it's been proven that we were cheated? We're still supposed to uh, support Hillary Clinton? What are we supposed to do now? What else do we get? We don't get anything out of this? So yeah, you guys, I know you were cheated and we completely tried to destroy Bernie Sanders' campaign from the beginning, but uh, she resigned and the staffer who was going to attack him for his religious beliefs said that he's sorry. Okay, great. So now let's just go fall in line and hold hands with the Democrats and vote for Hillary, right? There has to be something more. There absolutely has to be something more to every single person that donated to Bernie Sanders when they didn't have the money to do so. They were defrauded by the DNC. So we donated to a candidate that really didn't have a chance since the DNC was working against its own candidate. It was working against everyone except for Hillary Clinton because the emails in the DNC leak revealed that they were referring to Martin O'Malley as a joke as well. So they were in the tank for Hillary Clinton from the very beginning, and all of our suspicions were confirmed. Not that it wasn't, you know, brazenly obvious that Debbie do anything for Hillary Wasserman Schultz, otherwise known as Debt Trap Debbie, was in the tank for Hillary Clinton, but this just confirms all of that, and now we get nothing. The process was unfair. Who knows if Bernie Sanders could have won if the process was fair, but we get absolutely nothing. So this is a shame for democracy, and all that Hillary Clinton's campaign can do right now is fearmonger about Donald Trump again. How about this? How about you address the merits of what is in those emails? And just know, guys, this is only the beginning. So WikiLeaks will be releasing more emails. So what we will discover, <laughs> you know, this is only the beginning. So in the end, this is just incredibly unfair. And really, we were cheated and we get nothing now. Our candidate lost due to a highly unfair process. He could have won. We have no idea. We'll never know. But we get jack shit. But in the end, that's the update. I will be sure to come back if there's anything else. So the Republican convention in Cleveland, Ohio wrapped this week, and I wanted to give you guys my opinion on it because even though I was vocal on Twitter, I haven't spoken about it yet on the channel. So basically, the overall theme was fear. You should be complete and utterly afraid of undocumented immigrants, of uh, Muslims. Just be afraid. Be afraid of Russia. Be afraid of China. Be very fearful. Don't leave your house. And they trotted out families of victims killed by undocumented immigrants to illustrate the danger that they post to our country. There are isolated incidents where undocumented immigrants have killed Americans, so we should deport all of them is their logic, right? Well, if you apply that same logic elsewhere, then we should ban all guns since there are some isolated incidents where mass shooters kill American citizens, right? Oh wait, except they weren't making that argument. So they're willing to apply that logic to one political issue, but not to other issues. 
That's what you call smart right there. Now, they also wanted you to worry about terrorism, even though it's a fact that more people are actually killed in the U.S. due to gun violence, but don't care about that. Actually worry about the things that are less likely to affect you. Now, by and large, this rhetoric was espoused and echoed by many of their speakers who included reality stars from the esteemed real world, Duck Dynasty, Dancing with the Stars, and of course... The Apprentice. <laughs> now, my complaint is that, look, if you're going to trot out all of these reality TV show stars, at least get someone from Survivor or Big Brother. I mean, hell, even if you brought out Snooki for comic relief, even though the party provides that all on their own, I think that would be at least more entertaining, but you bring out the dumbest of what reality TV has to offer. Now, there were also some odd moments. So, Melania Trump plagiarized portions of her speech from Michelle Obama and inadvertently rickrolled the audience. Uh, and then Trump's campaign used lines from My Little Pony to defend said plagiarism. So the many of the same values. That you work hard like, for what you want You work life. hard for what you that want That your word life. is your bond. That your word is you your bond. You that you do what you say you're going to do. That you treat, that you people, treat people with respect. With they dignity and, and respect, even if you don't know them, and even life. if you don't agree with them. He will never ever give up. And most importantly, he will never ever let you down. Never gonna give you So you can't make this shit up. Now, also, Ted Cruz was booed off the stage for refusing to endorse Donald Trump. Much as I know that you do, stand and speak and vote your conscience. Vote for candidates up and down the ticket who you trust to defend our freedom and to be faithful to the Constitution. And in the end, you know, there were some highlights. Ivanka Trump actually delivered a really great speech, in my opinion. Uh, she tried to appeal to women, even though talking about equal pay enraged the base. As president, my father will change the labor laws that were put in place at a time when women were not a significant portion of the workforce. And he will focus on making quality childcare affordable and accessible for all. He will fight for equal pay, for equal work, and I will fight for this too, right alongside of him. And Donald Trump's speech appears very similar to the rise of fascism in Germany and Italy. So there were parts of the convention that were reminiscent of some of the darkest times in human history, and other portions were just similar to the film Idiocracy. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Now, that's not to say that it was all bad, because Trump rightfully and correctly criticized Hillary Clinton for her corruption, how she takes donations from Clinton Foundation donors, and as Secretary of State, she gave them weapons deals. Saudi Arabia is the biggest example that everyone uses. Now, he also predictably used FBI Director James Comey's line that Hillary Clinton was extremely careless in handling classified information, which... That's true. It's a fact. And he also correctly pointed out that people have been prosecuted for doing much less than her. Brian Nishimir is someone that comes to mind, even though he didn't actually cite his name. Now, he also directly reached out to Bernie supporters and tried to appeal to them on trade. So, I mean, you have to give him credit where credit is due. Uh, will I be voting for him? Absolutely not. But, I mean, he's going up against someone who is a corrupt 
corporatist candidate. Uh, so that doesn't make him any more appealing. But I mean, there are legitimate criticisms that he can attribute to Hillary Clinton that will not bounce off of him. Now, he's been terrible at that. He's criticizing her for the Iraq war, but then he picks Mike Pence as his VP. But in the end, I think that the negatives far outweighed the positives that were there in Donald Trump's speech. This whole convention was a complete disaster. Uh, and look, the Republican Party cannot be characterized as anything other than extreme. I mean, they are uh, more akin to the right-wing extremist parties in uh, France, such as National Front or UKIP in Great Britain. And those are fringe parties, but the Republican Party... They are fringe, but what's scary is that they're a mainstream candidate. So what this means is that they're making themselves less and less electorally viable. Will it be the case that a portion of the country, a sizable portion, maybe 20-25%, actually support this type of rhetoric? Well, yeah, but they're the wackadoos. They're the crazy people, you know. Uh, they don't represent mainstream America. But... As they move further and further to the right and become more crazy, more divisive, uh, more bigoted against minority communities, well then guess what's going to happen? The Democratic Party will continue to win and will become more of a one-party state, and then the Democratic Party will, in response, become more tyrannical, as we've seen, because they put forth idiots like Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. So the Democratic Party sees that, and they're like, oh, perfect, you know, uh, wash my hands with this. We don't have to appeal to even our own base. We can start appealing to their own supporters because they're doing such a shitty job of reaching out to them. I mean, look at the conservative evangelical Christians that don't want to vote for Trump. So now we can appeal to them. We can appeal to the big donors. And then they leave us behind as progressives. So, I mean, even though the party is becoming less and less electorally viable, we don't necessarily want the Republican Party to completely collapse. Uh, as Matt Taibbi from Rolling Stone made the point on TYT Nation, uh, shout out to Jordan Sheridan, uh, that, you know, if you have just a one-party system effectively, well, then what's going to happen is the Democrats will be tyrannical. They're going to be more and more right-wing. They're going to do what they want and not appeal to voters because nobody wants to vote for the idiots that are the Republican Party. And you're seeing that now. I mean, you're seeing how Hillary Clinton, uh, she appeals to Bernie supporters by saying, look, I'm not Donald Trump. So you may disagree with me politically, you may disagree with my war hawkish policies, but at least I'm not Donald Trump, right? And that is, I think, a strategy that can work for her. Now, I don't know who's going to win, Hillary or Donald, no idea, right? It can go either way at this point, I think. But, I mean, this whole uh, convention, it was just a debacle, uh, and it just proves that the Republican Party, if they don't change their ways, they're going to collapse. Now, last week I talked about the GOP party platform and how they're calling for effectively Christian Sharia, how they support bans on gay marriage constitutionally, mind you, when even their own base, 60% of young conservatives have moved on. They support marriage equality. So they're not lined up with voters, not even their own base. Uh, and they're going to collapse. If they can't appeal to mainstream America, they're going to collapse. Now, the thing is that Donald Trump, in many ways, does appeal to mainstream America. He, America, he is a right-wing populist. Uh, and, you know, he can appeal to them economically because he's a, quote, businessman, even though he's a failed businessman and was born into his wealth. But, I mean, he can appeal to them, so I'm not saying that he's completely out of it. But as they become more and more extreme, you disenfranchise more voters. And the goal is to, when you have two parties, be as Big Ten as possible. You know, try to lure in as much people as possible, but... Not going to happen when you have crazy people coming on the stage and basically calling for theocracy. So this party is, they're a disgrace. They're not electorally viable. They're extremist and they are allowing the Democratic Party to become more and more tyrannical because they're just not electorally viable. The Republicans are trying not to win.
So I want to talk about Dan Savage again. Now, I'm going to be critical of him in this video, but uh, he is someone who is a popular LGBTQ columnist, and he also is the person who founded the It Gets Better project. So even though I'm going to kind of object to some of the things that he says in this video, just know that I'm actually a really big fan of Dan Savage. And when you look at the other video where I criticize Dan Savage, I don't want you to get the impression that I think he's a bad person um, and that he's a bad guy. I mean, if you listen to this clip I'm going to play uh, for you in a bit, you'll get the impression that he's really pretentious and what. Not, but I mean, this is kind of this just his shtick. Like, he he's really into shock humor and stuff like that, uh, and and it's very entertaining. But at the same time, he is wrong here. So in this clip, I'll play for you. He talks about the Green Party, and he has a really strong criticism for them uh, and why they can't succeed. So um, with that being said, there is a lot of profanity in this video, so I won't censor it. But just be wary that if you're listening at work not safe for work. So I will play that for you and then we will come back and talk about the Green Party's response. Yeah, let's talk about the Green Party for just a moment or the or, or third parties getting a, a third party movement off the ground here in this country because we are sick of the two party system. Here's how you fucking do that. You run people not just for fucking president every four fucking years. If the, the I have a problem with the Greens. I have a problem with the Libertarians. I have a problem with these fake attention-seeking grandstanding green slash libertarian party candidates who pop up every four years like mushrooms in shit saying that they're building a third party and those of us who don't have a home in the republican party don't have a home in the democratic party can't get behind every democratic position or republican position should gravitate toward these third parties and help build a third party movement by every four fucking years voting for one of these assholes like jill fucking stein who I'm sure is a lovely person. She's only an asshole in this aspect. If you are interested in building a third party, a viable third party, you don't start with president. You don't start by running someone for fucking president. Where are the Green Party candidates for city councils, for county councils, for state legislatures, for state assessor, for state insurance commissioner, for governor, for fucking dog catcher? I would be so willing to vote for Green Party candidates who are starting at the bottom, grassroots, bottom up, building a third party, a viable third party. You don't do that by trotting out the reanimated corpse of Ralph fucking Nader every four fucking years. Or his doppelganger, whoever it is now, Jill Stein, and some asshole to be named four years from now. You start by running grassroots local campaigns. And there have been, and I'm sure we're going to hear from lots of people out there listening, there have been a couple of Green Party candidates who've run in other races here and there across the country, but no sustained effort to build a Green Party nationally. Just this griping, bullshitty, grandstanding, fault-finding, purity-testing, holier-than-thouing that we are all subjected to every four fucking years by the Green Party candidate and the folks, including you, caller, and I love you, and I respect you, and we're having this debate, and I'm not treating you with kid gloves because I respect you, who are fooled by them, who are sucked into this bullshit, who are tricked by these grandstanding, attention-seeking, bullshit-spewing charlatans into wasting your vote, which is what you are going to do. I'm sorry to say, to circle back to the top of your call, you are essentially, if you're voting for Jill Stein, helping to potentially elect 
Donald J. Trump president of these United States, which would be a catastrophe, which is what some people say that they want. People supported Ralph Nader in 2000 and said there was no difference between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Therefore, we could all afford to throw our votes away protest style on Ralph Nader, who had no hope of getting elected because there was no difference between Bush and Gore. These same people at the same time said that George Bush was so manifestly, obviously terrible that he would bring the revolution if he got himself elected somehow. They didn't say that about Gore. He wouldn't bring the revolution. They're exactly the same, exactly as awful, but one would bring the revolution and one wouldn't, which means they weren't exactly the same and they weren't equally awful. And we're hearing the same thing now about Hillary and Donald. That they're both equally awful, they're both equally terrible, corrupt two-party system, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. Fuck them both, fuck both their houses, vote for Jill Stein. And if Donald should get elected, oh, he's so terrible, so much worse than the equally awful Hillary Clinton, that his election will bring the revolution. It's bullshit. So there's more to that, but in summary, he's arguing that they're going about building a viable national third party all wrong. If you want to do that, you've got to start at the bottom, not the top. Start running more candidates in local and state elections. Now, the national co-chair of the Green Party responded to this in an op-ed for the Huffington Post. She states, first, the Green Party actually does run candidates from dog catcher on up. Some former elected officials include Michael Feinstein, mayor of Santa Monica, California, and myself, Denver's first green registered elected official. Readers can find even more names at our database. So you see, Savage's assertion that we don't run candidates in other tiers is incorrect. And perhaps he didn't notice the 2014 campaigns for Congress, State Representative, Public Utility District, and Charter Review Commission in Washington State. It doesn't appear that Savage is aware of the incredible advantage that the duopoly parties have in automatic ballot access, as opposed to the massive injustice that third parties face. In in states like Illinois, having a presidential candidate is a requirement for winning major party status, without which an alternative party has no future. In other states, a presidential candidate helps bring attention to the campaign to gather petition signatures to run any candidate as a Green. Now, she also addresses the 2000 election, which is what Dan Savage brought up, and talks about how uh, Ralph Nader only drew in 24,000 votes from Democratic voters, and that they got a lot of votes from registered Green Party members. Uh, and he fails to talk about how 300,000 Democrats switched and voted for George Bush. So I think she rightfully points out that it's unfair to criticize the Green Party. Now, she also adds, when we in the Green Party hear about spoiler candidates, it usually comes from people who believe that the Democratic Party is entitled to votes without actually doing the work of the people. We are expected to faithfully fall in line without any perceivable return on investment. So overall, uh, although I respect the work of Dan Savage, I do disagree with his criticism of the Green Party, although there is a kernel of truth to the fact that they don't run Green Party candidates in every local election, but this isn't necessarily because they don't want to. It all comes down to ballot access. Furthermore, he has a fundamental misunderstanding of how you actually build a viable third party. If you want more than two parties, you've got to fight for electoral reform because without it, our majoritarian electoral system will continue to push us into a system where we have a duopoly of parties. Even if it is the case that the Green Party becomes a successful, nationally, electorally viable political party, that doesn't just mean that we're going to have 
three major parties, that would most likely mean that their success is contingent on the failure of another party. So the Green Party or the Libertarian Party would likely emerge as a replacement to the collapse of either the Republicans or the Democrats. And the problem is that even if that is the case, well, both parties will change dramatically. So let's say hypothetically speaking that the Republican Party, they continue down this path and they end up collapsing because they don't appeal to voters anymore. And the Green Party emerges as the new big party and the Democrats are now the conservative party. Well, they're not just going to remain the same. What's going to happen is the Democratic Party will move significantly to the right to make up ground uh, and capture the Republican voters that they lost once the party collapsed. And what would Green Party do? They would have to move towards the center to capture Democratic voters. And sooner but later, guess what's going to happen? We have two shitty parties again. We're stuck in the two-party nightmare. So unless you actually fight for real electoral reform, you will never get the result you're looking for. So what we actually need is electoral reform. We need to switch from a majoritarian to a proportional representation system, and that will allow for more political parties to exist. And when you have more political parties to exist, if you have at least two on each side, the left and the right, well, the further left party will keep the centrist party in check. So if we had the Green Party, they'd keep the Democrats from moving past the center line. So, I mean, it's a good check on power. It's It makes them more competitive, and it makes them really want to appeal to voters more. But since you have two parties, one of which the Republicans are just completely off the spectrum now, well, the Democratic Party has a lot more wiggle room, and they could basically snub their own base, and they could appeal to their donors and do what they want because... Well, the other party is so crazy that they're almost not viable anymore. So Dan Savage is wrong to imply that building a viable third party is as easy as running candidates in local elections because the Green Party, they have been doing that for decades now. It's just that it's really difficult to do that if you don't have equal ballot access. And furthermore, another issue is lack of federal funds. So because the Green Party doesn't have federal funding like the Democrats and Republicans, well, how are you going to run candidates in literally every single race in the country? There are thousands and thousands, so you just can't afford it. What money they have is raised from individual donors who donate on the Green Party's website. They don't have the funds to do this, so if they reach a certain percentage in votes, then they can secure federal funding. That's why many people want to vote for them. Now, Dan Savage also said that you are wasting your vote if you vote for Jill Stein. So, this is a really deceptive saying that many people like to use against Jill Stein supporters when they won't fall in line. It's intellectually dishonest and it disregards the variation across the country. So a vote for Jill Stein is no more wasted than a vote for a Republican in a deep blue state. So for example, for me as a voter in Oregon, if I decided I wanted to vote for Donald Trump, that would be a wasted vote because do you know how many electoral votes Donald Trump will win in Oregon, a deep blue state? Zero. It is winner take all in terms of electoral votes here. So he will get zero electoral votes. Hillary Clinton will get them all. So effectively, my vote for Donald Trump wouldn't even count. So to say that a vote for Jill Stein is a wasted vote or it's a vote for Trump, well, it's misleading me because it disregards the huge amount of variation we have across the country. That will vary depending on your state. Now, furthermore, when you think about it as a protest vote, it really isn't a wasted vote because the larger the vote percentage that the Green Party gets, well, the bigger the force they'll actually become in American politics. And even if they can't win, well, they'll become such a big force that they'll pull enough votes from the Democrats that they'll 
start to realize maybe we need to pay attention to the Green Party. Maybe we actually need to start uh, moving back to the left because we're losing so many voters to them. So it's not a wasted vote. It's a it's a protest vote that is strategic in many ways, and it's also a sincere vote because you're picking the candidate who you sincerely agree with more, not voting for the lesser of two evils. And it's sad that 80% of voters that are voting for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are literally voting because they are wanting to prevent the other candidate from winning. So almost all of the country is voting for the lesser of two evils. If you're voting for third party and you're voting for someone who you legitimately support and agree with more... I wouldn't call that a wasted vote. Even if you do get electoral reform, you may not get the result that you want, and it's very complex, it's convoluted, it's difficult to understand. I mean, Japan is an example. They had one party for decades, and then they actually did electoral reform, and then what happened was they got a new party that won, and then the next election cycle they lost, and now they're back to one party, basically. So you really have to be smart, and you have to realize... Uh, the dynamics of different electoral institutions and how they really do play a role in determining the number of political parties that you have in the country. Political competition will be conducive to better representation. If we get electoral reform and we have more than two electorally viable parties, well, then they'll have to represent us. They can't just represent their donors because that would threaten their power. But in the end, I think that Dan Savage doesn't understand how you get more than two parties. He doesn't understand that the Green Party actually is running local candidates and that you know it's it's an issue of logistics they're not choosing to refrain from one running uh, third party candidates or green party candidates in local elections because they want to it's because that's really difficult to do so without ballot access without federal funding it's difficult to do so in our majoritarian electoral system so the main takeaway i want everyone to have is that Electoral reform, that needs to be as important as getting money out of politics. Like, we have Wolfpack. I think we need a separate Wolfpack just to get electoral reform. We need a proportional representation system. If we could just copy and paste the German electoral system into America, I think that would be fantastic because they have about five uh, electorally viable parties. But yet, um, you know, their proportional system, it's not proportional enough to allow crazy people to get in. So... I love the German electoral system. You choose not just the candidate, but you choose between parties as well. We got to do something because if we don't get real electoral reform, it doesn't matter how good the Green Party and the Libertarian Party does. Uh, we'll almost always come back down to a two-party system at the end of the day. And that's not me, you know, trying to be pessimistic. That's just me stating the reality of our unfair electoral system. Cornell West, who previously endorsed Bernie Sanders has decided to now endorse Green Party presidential candidate Dr. Jill Stein. Now, we all love Cornel West because not only was he an outspoken uh, proponent of Bernie Sanders and his progressive ideas, but he referred to Hillary Clinton as the Milli Vanilli of American politics, which is the truest thing I've ever heard. So he explained his reasoning as to why he decided to flip and support Jill Stein uh, and not Hillary Clinton like every other person is doing. And I wanted to share what he said because I thought that it will resonate, you know, with a lot of people. It certainly did with me. What made you decide to support the Green Party presidential candidate as opposed to Hillary Clinton? Well, I've never been tied to one party or one candidate or even one institution. Uh, and that's true even one church as a Christian. I'm committed to truth and justice. And uh, Brother Bernie, no doubt, was, uh, was the standard bearer for truth and justice during the, uh, the primary at a national level, at a highly visible level. Once he endorsed Hillary Clinton, 
who for me is a neoliberal disaster. Uh, uh, it was clear. What do you mean by that? A neoliberal disaster is one who generates a mass incarceration regime, who deregulates banks and markets, who uh, promotes uh, uh, chaos, a regime, regime change in Libya, supports military coups in Honduras, uh, uh, undermines some of the uh, magnificent efforts in, in Haiti of working people and so forth. That's the record of Hillary Clinton. So there was no way when my dear brother, who I love very deeply, Bernie Sanders, said she'll make an outstanding president. I said, oh, I disagree with my brother. I think she, I don't think she'll make an outstanding president at all. She's a militarist. She's a hawk. She could take us into war with Russia. She could take us into war with, uh, with, with, with Iran. So, I mean, I think she's, she's, uh, she's dangerous in terms of her neoliberal ideology, not as a woman, because I'm supporting, of course, my dear sister Jill Stein. I think after a magnificent campaign of Bernie Sanders, the next step is a green step. The next step is a progressive step. And when you're calling for reparations, you're calling for the release of prisons, prisoners who have been historically uh, uh, unfairly treated, especially tied to uh, nonviolent crimes, and then saying they should vote, and that vote should never be taken away. When you're calling, putting people and planet and peace before profits. Uh, Sister Jill Stein, for me, is a, somebody that's worth fighting for. And she's not a spoiler. You know, a lot of people use that term, spoiler. If Hillary Clinton can't make the case to progressives, she doesn't deserve our vote. Now, Trump is a neo-fascist in the making. There's no doubt about that. Donald Trump. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt about that. But the thing is, is that uh, you can't just be a, a non-Trump and deserve one's vote. If Hillary Clinton wants to vote a progressive, she better be real about it. But I don't think she has the capacity to be real about it. She's so tied to Wall Street. She's so tied to the corporate elite. So everything that he said there is 100% true. And I appreciate how concise he was, not only in stating why he's supporting Jill Stein, but in also addressing the spoiler controversy as well, because consistently it's always the case in every single election cycle that spoiler candidates, and I don't even like using that word because I think it's just insulting, but uh, the spoiler candidate is always blamed when Democrats lose. When are we going to start blaming Democrats when Democrats lose? It's frustrating to me because if a Democrat is so weak that their own base dislikes them, Whose fault is that if people gravitate towards a candidate who is not part of the Democratic Party? What we all care about is the ideas, the progressive party goals that we all have. We want a party that's going to be progressive. We want a party that's actually going to stand up for what we believe in. Universal health care, a $15 minimum wage. We care about these things. And even though the Democratic Party has included some of the things we care about in its platform, like the $15 minimum wage and marijuana legalization, we know that they're not actually going to fight for these things. And that the only reason why they included that in their platform is because they are trying to pander to Bernie supporters. And they were trying to use that as leverage to get Bernie Sanders to endorse Hillary Clinton, so I don't believe anything they say. So Hillary Clinton came forward and she said that she would propose a constitutional amendment in the first 30 days to overturn Citizens United. That's great, but why is she only doing this now? Well, she wants to appeal to Bernie Sanders supporters, and she knows that she can say this because it has no way of passing. Do you think she's going to garner two-thirds of support to ratify a constitutional amendment? Absolutely not. So they will say anything and change nothing. This is a quote from Barack Obama, and it couldn't be truer, and it actually proved to be quite true for him as well. So how about we stop blaming 
the voters of the Democratic Party or the Green Party when they decide to vote third party and actually blame the shitty corporatist, corrupt, warmongering candidates the Democratic Party keeps trying to shove down our throats that we keep rejecting. Think about the 2014 election. We were blamed by people like Barney Frank because we didn't turn out to vote. Well, it's no wonder we didn't turn out to vote. Some Democratic contenders, for example, one in Kentucky, Alison Lundergan Grimes, she was running against Mitch McConnell, and she was in favor of conservative policies. You had Mark Pryor, who was a Southern Democrat, who was basically advocating for Christian Sharia. He was running ads talking about how the Bible is the best book ever and how he's guided by Jesus Christ. Okay, great. If we if we want that, we'd vote Republican. We don't need Republican light. We need Democrat, which is supposed to be the liberal party. But if you're not going to be liberal, we're not going to vote for you. So you can't blame us. Blame yourself. Blame the shitty Democratic Party. And look, here's the thing. If you have a strong presidential candidate, you don't have to worry about a spoiler. Guess who didn't worry about a spoiler? Barack Obama in 2008. Guess who wouldn't have to worry about a spoiler? Bernie Sanders, do you think the Democratic base is going to be longing for some corporatist centrist candidate? No, they just vote for the Republican. So if you don't want a spoiler, don't give us a crappy candidate who we don't like, who is historically disliked. That's your own fault, not ours. Now, the thing about Jill Stein is that she's stronger than Bernie Sanders on many fronts. I mean, she wants to abolish student debt. This is something that Bernie Sanders, even though he was really great, on, you know, his free college tuition plan. I loved it. But he didn't talk about how to uh, help us with student debt. So what do we do if we already have the debt? You know, I mean, he said he wanted to help us refinance our student debt, but that's not much further than Hillary Clinton. Now, his college free tuition plan is great. That prevents us from getting more debt, and we don't want to accumulate any more than we have. But, I mean, you've got to help the people who are currently hurting who can't stimulate the economy. Jill Stein gets this. Now, furthermore, she wants to pull out of the Afghanistan war. Bernie Sanders didn't want to. Uh, she's objectively stronger on the issue of Israel and Palestine than Bernie Sanders is. So in general, I think that Jill Stein is a really strong candidate. I still prefer Bernie Sanders or would have preferred Bernie Sanders because I think that he had a better shot of winning. You know, that's obvious. If you're the Democratic nominee, then of course, you know, you're in a better position to win given our electoral system. But Jill Stein is a fantastic candidate and she's very qualified. Now, people who are supporting Hillary will retort by saying, but she's never even held office. Who cares? Hillary Clinton has held every office you can imagine, and it's it's proven that her judgment is terrible. Jill Stein is someone who understands what everyday, normal working people want, and that's someone who I have to support morally. I can't vote for the lesser of two evils, because if you do that, then they are going to continue to get more and more evil. So I have to vote with my conscience, like Hillary Clinton said I should do. So that person is Jill Stein. So thanks for the advice, Hillary. I, I appreciate it. In an interview with the New York Times, Donald Trump stated that he wouldn't necessarily come to the defense of our NATO allies, including newer members in Baltic states, because they haven't made their monetary contributions to NATO. Thus, they haven't fulfilled their obligations to us. So why should we fulfill our obligations to them, is his logic. He says, if we are not going to be reasonably reimbursed for the tremendous cost of protecting these massive nations with tremendous wealth, then yes. I would be absolutely prepared to tell these countries, congratulations, you will be defending yourself. Now, the problem with that is we are 
obligated under international law to come to the defense of our NATO allies. Fox explains, the problem, however, is that the U.S. is treaty-bound to defend its NATO allies. When NATO was created in 1949, it was built around a promise that an attack on one country would be considered an attack on all countries. You invade Poland, you start a war with the United States. Now, NATO doesn't have the power to force the United States or any other power to defend anyone else. Article 5, the provision in the NATO treaty that provides for collective self-defense isn't binding on America in the way the U.S. Constitution is. Instead, Article 5 works by credible commitment. If the United States signals that it is fundamentally committed to the NATO treaty, then it sends a signal to Russia and other hostile powers that the U.S. will abide by the term of its agreements. This deters them from launching wars or any other kind of military adventurism in an American-aligned state. Now, what Donald Trump just communicated to Putin by saying this is, you know what, when I'm president, bud, if you want to invade Lithuania, uh, Latvia, Estonia, I'm cool with it. Who the hell cares? Now, the question for progressives is, well, doesn't this make sense? Shouldn't we not be getting involved in conflicts that don't actually involve us? So, I mean, if Putin does actually decide to invade Estonia, well, why should we get involved? Why should we waste the money? Why shouldn't they defend themselves? That's the question. Now, this argument is akin to the libertarian argument that many progressives agree with that, you know what, since ISIS is a Middle Eastern problem, maybe we should allow those Middle Eastern countries to deal with the threat of ISIS themselves. Maybe we shouldn't be getting involved in that. And that's an argument that I think is agreeable to a certain extent. But regardless, if you agree or disagree with that type of non-interventionist argument, I think the overall goal of progressives is to help foster international peace and stability. Well, the thing is that NATO actually helps with that. So by openly disclosing that you would violate long-standing agreements like this, not only do you communicate to the world that we're not good on our word and that our commitment to NATO is weak, but you give Putin permission to wreak havoc on the Baltic states that he so desperately wants to actually reclaim. And that would destabilize all of Europe. So if Putin starts reclaiming countries because he knows that we're not going to defend our NATO allies, guess what's going to happen? This could potentially escalate to World War III. Now, Vox explains that the absolutely crucial point about NATO is that it functions on the basis of credible guarantee. The point of NATO is to deter war by convincing hostile powers like Russia that the U.S. would 100% defend its NATO allies. But since there's no formal legal way to force the U.S. to defend its allies, this hinges on the idea that the American leadership is deeply committed to upholding its word and agreements in Europe. Now, at face value, I honestly do get that it does seem that this NATO agreement would be counterintuitive to peace, right? Because seemingly, you're being more aggressive if you basically agree to attack anyone that comes after your friends. But the overall thing that Donald Trump doesn't get is that if you actually do want peace, if you want less interventions, then this NATO agreement is a way to inadvertently make that come to fruition. Now, this isn't just me speculating. This is based on consensus from international relations experts. One study from professors Jesse Johnson and Brett Ashley Leeds surveyed about 200 years of data on conflicts and concluded that defensive alliances lower the probability of international conflict and are thus a good policy option for states seeking to maintain peace in the world. Another study looked specifically at the period from 1950 to 2000 and found that formal alliances with nuclear states appear to carry significant deterrence benefits. 
The US's formal agreements then deter aggression against its non-nuclear partners like Germany and the Baltics. In their new book on American grand strategy, Dartmouth scholars Stephen Brooks and William Wolferth write most assessments nonetheless sum up to the conclusion that NATO is a net security plus. And when you look at new international relations theories, they will contend that if you form alliances, that's a good way to maintain peace. If you have this overwhelming force, if you have an alliance, well, then nobody's going to want to touch that. It's like poking a beehive. So these alliances are ways to foster international peace and stability. I know it doesn't seem like that. I know it seems like Donald Trump is trying to be the pro-peace candidate by saying we're not going to intervene, but what he's doing is incredibly damaging. Now, Putin's goal has been to ultimately break NATO, and he's been testing their cohesion by flying over the airspace of Baltic countries as a signal of his strength. So basically, so long as Putin just believes that we'll honor our obligations to NATO, well, it's unlikely that he would try anything because you'd be a maniac to do that. Now, even though Donald Trump didn't unequivocally say that he would not come to the defense of our NATO allies, well, just the mere fact that he openly contemplated it, well, it's cause for concern, not just for us, but for people in NATO countries who don't have the military capacity to actually defend themselves in the event Putin decides that he does actually want to invade them. And here's the scariest part. So scholars of Russian politics and European geopolitics note that it is the case that Russia's military has degraded substantially. I mean, this isn't the Cold War. You know, they're not like they were in the days of the USSR where they were powerful. So they can't compete with the US. So rather than being reasonable and backing off and not trying to Get involved with anything, what are they doing? Well, in their own military doctrine, it states that they are willing to use nuclear weapons in the event of serious conflict. So the fact that they're weaker doesn't make it less likely that they would attack or invade. It just makes nuclear war all the more likely. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, the apocalypse is near, we're all doomed, that nuclear war is inevitable. But what I am saying is that actions have consequences. And when you communicate to the world that our NATO agreement means nothing, well, then you are in for a really rough time if you're expecting international peace and stability. Now, the thing is that Putin already annexed Crimea, so he's proven that he's thirsty, you know, he he wants to expand. He is longing for the old glory days when the USSR, they were huge, but Russia is much smaller, uh, much less powerful than then, and he wants to bring back those days. If it reignites the Cold War, then who the hell cares? That's his view. And if he actually tries to invade a Baltic state, well, other countries nearby will inevitably become embroiled in that conflict, and it could quickly escalate into World War III. We don't want that. So if you're on the side of peace, if you're on the side of international stability, then this is bad news. And it just shows that Donald Trump is so dangerous that he's not even president yet, and he's making the entire world less safe. To be that dim-witted, to be that reckless, I don't even think he knows the damage of his remarks. It just proves that he's not fit to be president. He's not fit to have the nuclear codes. You have to have these types of strategic alliances, even if you disagree with going to war to defend them, just because it's a deterrent, you know, it, it maintains peace. So when you start saying, you know what, I'm not going to get involved in anything, well then you just open the door for chaos, not just in Russia, but around the world, because any bilateral agreements we have with other countries, well, maybe, uh, you know, we're not going to honor those as well. So, I mean, maybe we won't protect South Korea if North Korea decides to launch nukes against them. You know, it, it's scary. So, you can't be doing this. Donald Trump is just a reckless idiot, 
and he's a maniac. So documentary filmmaker Michael Moore is someone who I think is a really important figure in American politics, even though sometimes, you know, his films can be a little bit too hyperbolic and, you know, he tries to appeal to your emotions more than reason sometimes. I think that there's still a lot of great facts in his documentary, and I think that what he can do oftentimes is galvanize a discussion around important political issues. For example, I mean, I question whether or not we would have passed the Affordable Care Act if it wasn't for his movie Sickle. So I think that Michael Moore is really important. His movies, you know, they get people talking. Now, he was on the Bill Maher program, and he made a prediction about this presidential election. So we'll go ahead and see what he said, and then we'll come back, and I'll tell you what I think. I'm sorry to have to kind of be the, the buzzkill here so early on, but I think Trump is going to win. I, I'm sorry. You know what? Yeah. I, boo if you want. I am glad you're saying that. I'm Everybody so, should say, say that. No, no. The, the, the enemy is complacency. Yeah. Yes. I, say it every day. I live, Not only could, he, he certainly in, could win. I live in and, Michigan. Let me tell you. Let me right. tell you. What he's, no. this, he's gonna, it's going to be the Brexit strategy. The, the middle of England is Michigan, Wisconsin, right. Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And Mitt Romney lost by 64 electoral votes. The total electoral votes of those four states in the Rust Belt, 64. Yeah. All he has to do is win yeah. those four states. And I'm telling you, I was there during the Michigan primary, and he went there in front of a Ford, and he said, I'm telling you right now, they moved this factory to Mexico. I'm right. putting the right. tariff but on the cars, and that's it. And it was music to people's ears, and more people in Michigan in the Michigan primary voted Republican than Democrat. <laughs> in the in the primary this year except, that should be a disturbing that that the message. so the question is is he correct and my response is i have no idea um part of me questions and this you know credit to whoever said it some people on reddit were discussing the fact that you know maybe he doesn't necessarily believe this so much that you know he thinks trump is going to win but maybe he thinks it's possible and he's saying this as a means of mobilizing the democratic base i don't know but i think that him saying trump's going to win is there a truth to it absolutely for me personally i think that this election can go either way you have people like nate silver he's made a lot of wrong predictions and this used to be you know boy genius before and now He's, he's made a lot of wrong predictions. Now, a lot of people have, because this is an odd election cycle. But he said that Hillary Clinton has a 79% chance of winning, and I think that's absurd. This election really could go either way. It's not decided yet. And the fact that, you know, the polls may change, even though Hillary Clinton is currently tied with Donald Trump, you don't know what's going to happen. So I'm going to go through reasons as to why both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump could win. It's not decided yet. So here's why Donald Trump could win. He's caught up to her in the polls, and he's performing well in swing states. This is a sign that he could win. Also, Hillary Clinton is historically disliked for the Democratic Party, and this might depress turnout, which is favorable to Republicans. Now, the Republican base could be mobilized to get out and vote for him to prevent Hillary Clinton from winning. He's also anti-establishment, and that draws in more independents than Hillary Clinton does. He also draws in a lot of white voters. Now, Hillary Clinton is also rightfully perceived as untrustworthy and corrupt. And the FBI investigation, you know, even though she wasn't indicted, still didn't help that perception. And there's evidence for this when you look at the fact that a majority of the country wants her to be indicted. Now, 
God forbid a terrorist attack happens somewhere in the world before the election, well, this could really make Americans feel unsafe and thus gravitate more towards Donald Trump. So, I mean, when you look at all of these reasons, it's very likely that Donald Trump could win. But when you look at the reasons why Hillary Clinton could win, a lot of the times it's the opposite reason. So, Donald Trump is historically disliked. He is more historically disliked than Clinton. He also polls terribly with African-American and Latino voters. And also the fact that he's a proto-fascist might mobilize the Democratic base to get out and support Hillary Clinton. Now, even though she's pro-establishment, that does have some benefits because she will likely draw in more money from billionaire donors, and these donors will pour money into her campaign and help sway independence through TV advertising. So anyone who is not politically savvy, that's a swing voter, that's more independent, well, this money could help. Now, she also draws in a huge amount of support from African Americans and Latinos. Trump polls terribly with them. Now, Trump is rightfully perceived as a con man who's shady. Now, he's also being sued for fraud, and there are currently rape allegations waged against him. So, that's a really bad thing. Now, God forbid a mass shooting could happen before the election, and that could cause people to gravitate towards Hillary Clinton, who are looking to feel protected from that, someone who's actually going to put forth gun legislation. And I do believe that Hillary Clinton would pursue that. Now, many conservatives won't be voting for him, including the Bushes, Glenn Beck, Ted Cruz. Now, she also does have more experience than him. Now, irrespective of her judgment, this is something that many older voters really value. And also, it's undoubtedly the case that she's just more intelligent than him. So, if you didn't notice, the theme is that they have about an equal amount of advantages and disadvantages. And where Donald Trump is very weak, Hillary Clinton is very strong. And where she's very weak, he's very strong. So this election is not over. It can go either way. And it's it's July. So we can't say with certainty that anything's going to happen in November because a lot could change. We don't know how the debates are going to go. Uh, we've seen some debates where Donald Trump performed badly, uh, but a lot of the times he did very well, but he had really idiotic opponents. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, she's more intelligent, but at the same time, she doesn't perform very well in debates. I think Bernie Sanders crushed her in nearly every debate. There was very few debates where I thought Hillary Clinton actually even came close to winning. So who knows what's going to happen? It's up in the air. Now, if Bernie Sanders had won the nomination, this would be an entirely different story. I wouldn't actually predict that he would beat Donald Trump. I would just state that he probably has a better chance because, I mean, you never want to underestimate your opponent, which is something that Bill Maher correctly pointed out. So could Bernie Sanders beat Donald Trump? Yeah, would he have likely beat Donald Trump? Who knows? I think he definitely has the better chance. That's what every single poll basically said. So the overall point is that we have no idea who's going to win this. So last week, we talked about Donald Trump's VP pick and how I thought it was a terrible idea strategically. So here's what I said. But he contradicts Donald Trump on key issues that he could be attacking Hillary Clinton on. So for example, Mike Pence was in favor of the Iraq war. Mike Pence is in favor of these disastrous free trade deals such as CAFTA. Uh, and the worst part is that Mike Pence is pro-establishment. He's literally part of the establishment. He was a congressman, and now he is a governor. So, 
all these things that you could have criticized Hillary Clinton for, you could have said, well, you supported the Iraq war. That was wrong. You support the TPP and all these disastrous trade deals that ship our jobs overseas. Now she can say, well, so does your VP and you can't say anything. So I think strategically, this is just a dumb move. Now I was validated almost immediately and I don't want to gloat and, you know, be a pretentious douchebag, but I just thought it was such an obviously bad choice for him given you know uh, how he's trying to portray himself as the anti-establishment anti-iraq war anti-tpp candidate when you pick someone that you know is going to override the appeal that you may have from bernie sanders supporters and others on the left well then that's a bad choice uh but he was uh being interviewed by cbs and what did she do well she pressed him on the things that i said he would be pressed on when the World Trade Center comes tumbling down with thousands of people being killed, people are still, I have friends that are still well, we did go to war, you. if you remember. We went to Iraq. Yeah, you went to Iraq, but that was handled so badly. And that was a war, by the way. That was a war that we shouldn't have done, because Iraq did not knock down. Excuse You're running, me. Iraq did voted not knock down. I don't care. What do you mean you don't care that he voted? It's a long time ago. And he voted that way, and they were also misled. A lot of information was given to people, but I was against the war in Iraq from the beginning. Yeah, but you used that vote that of Hillary's that was the same as Governor right. Pence. Many people as have. the example of her bad judgment. You've many said people that many have, times. and frankly, I'm one of the few that was right on Iraq. Yeah, but what about he? Did? Yeah. He's entitled to make a mistake every once in a while. <laughs> but she's not. Okay, come on. But she's we, not. She's not. No, she's not. <laughs> Got it. So at the end there, he said that Mike Pence is entitled to make a mistake once in a while, uh, but Hillary isn't. Now, people can retort and say he was only being tongue-in-cheek, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, I think that what matters is that Donald Trump, even though he rails against the Iraq war, he wasn't correct on the Iraq war. On the Howard Stern show, he indicated support for it, although to be fair, he did quickly change his view. Now, I knew this was going to happen, and you can guarantee it's going to happen again, especially during debates with Hillary, uh, and it's probably going to come up again when it comes to the TPP and when it comes to his anti-establishment appeal, which now just doesn't mean anything. Uh, so she actually asked him uh, about the anti-establishment thing and said, why would you pick someone from the establishment? And he said he did it for purposes of party unity. And, you know, that's great, but now you can't use that line against Hillary Clinton. And you can't say that typical establishment politicians are dumb and only do the bidding of their donors because that's not referring to someone on your ticket. And the most egregious part is that he said Mike Pence's vote for the Iraq war was a mistake. No. When you go to the grocery store and you accidentally pick up chili instead of refried beans when you're trying to make burritos, that's a mistake. If you say something crude or offensive and then later come around to it and apologize for it and change your views, you know, those are mistakes. Those are mistakes that you deserve a pass on. But when you vote for a war that causes more than 200,000 people to die, that costs trillions of dollars that destabilizes the entire Middle East that results in the rise of ISIS that sparks a civil war in Iraq, you don't get to just say, oops, looks like I made a mistake. Mm -mm. If you make a mistake of epic proportions like that, you're done. You should be done in politics. You should be discredited forever. Your career should be over. The Iraq war was the biggest blunder perhaps in American history, comparable to the Vietnam War, and 
you expect us to just say, well, you made a mistake. Everyone makes mistakes once in a while. You don't get a pass on that. I question your judgment on every issue ever. You don't get to just come around and rebound for that after voting for the Iraq war, after all the deaths. We can't bring those people back from the dead. We can't restabilize the region after you messed it up. So I'm sorry. That's not just a mistake. And both Mike Pence and Hillary Clinton their career should be over in politics. They should never be able to get a job in politics again. They should only be qualified to work in customer service, Taco Bell, Walmart. That's all they should be able to get. When you mess up that bad, you have a criminal record as far as I'm concerned, but someone who is busted for selling marijuana, well, good luck ever getting a job if you just smoke it in one state. Good luck getting a job again. You have that on your record forever. Yet, if you do something that kills hundreds of thousands of people, it was a mistake. I can go be president now or vice president. No. And you know, what's sickening is that we have two mainstream political parties who have tickets that has someone that voted for the Iraq war. So you have no choice. One of them is going to win. Whoever wins is someone who voted for the Iraq war, but regrets it. Oh, yay. I'm so glad you regret it. But I question your judgment. You can make a mistake and then regret it, but that doesn't change your judgment. You forever have terrible judgment. So the fact that he would say, oh, you know, he made a mistake. It's ridiculous, and it's also a double standard. See, you don't get to give Mike Pence a pass, but then hold Hillary Clinton to an entirely different standard. See, it's wrong that she voted for the Iraq War, but it's also wrong that Mike Pence did it. So you can't say that he can do this, but she can. That's a double standard. Now, the problem is that Republicans have so many things that they can legitimately criticize Hillary Clinton on, but they choose to go for the most idiotic things ever. Benghazi. Okay, how many times do Republicans have to investigate this and determine that there was no wrongdoing? They act like she gave orders to kill someone. That wasn't the case. You can make the case that maybe she was negligent and should have handled it in a different way, but there's no guilt there. There's no evidence of wrongdoing for her and President Obama. And what else do they do? They accuse Bill Clinton of being a rapist. Well, that's fine, but acknowledge that there are also allegations against Donald Trump for being a rapist. So actually use policy substance. Don't pivot to these dumb attacks. The one area where you could have attacked her substantively on the Iraq war. That's the one thing that you could have really got her for legitimately. That and the TPP. And now you can't do that because your VP is in support of those things. So it's a double standard and it's just stupid and it's egregious that you would refer to the Iraq war as a mistake. Try to explain that it was only a mistake to the families of civilians who were killed in Iraq due to the civil war that you started. Try to explain that mistake to the families of American veterans who gave their lives for an unnecessary war that just caused more chaos and destabilized the region. Yeah, some things are just mistakes. And regardless if you acknowledge them or not, some of them are unforgivable. I think the Iraq war is one of those times where a mistake is certainly unforgivable. Rupert Murdoch has officially announced that his partner, chairman and chief executive of Fox News, Roger Ailes, will be stepping down. Now, this announcement comes after numerous allegations of sexual harassment by female Fox News hosts. Now, it started with Gretchen Carlson, who claims that he made unwanted sexual advances towards her, and he implied that she could improve her career if she performs sexual acts with him. So, 
complete creep. Uh, and also, 10 other women have since come forward, and this includes Megyn Kelly, who claims that he also made unwanted sexual advances to her as well. And this wasn't just one time, this was repeated unwanted sexual advances, so he wouldn't take no for an answer. So this guy is a serial sexual harasser, and the really disturbing part is that according to many of the female staffers at Fox, there's more women that may want to come forward but are not doing so because they're afraid, uh, and this is creating a hostile work environment, clearly. So, I mean, this guy is a creep. We already knew that he was a bad person before this because he is the president of a company that is a right-wing propaganda outlet. So he's misinforming people, he's misleading them, so we know he's a bad guy. But to actually sexually harass your employees who are doing the bidding for you, who are faithful to you, it's honestly sickening and it's it's abuse of power, you know, of epic proportions to be someone that rich and powerful uh, and to do this to your staffers. Now, we don't necessarily know the outcome of the lawsuit, of course, but this guy is already being rewarded for stepping down. So according to the New York Times, Mr. Ailes will walk away with about $40 million as part of a settlement agreement, according to two people briefed on the matter, which essentially amounts to the remainder of his existing employment contract through 2018. And as part of the agreement, Mr. Ailes cannot start a competitor to Fox News, and he will continue to make himself available as an advisor to Mr. Murdoch. So... In some ways, he's still going to be working for Fox News, and he is getting a $40 million payout. Man, you know, this really must suck for him. This poor guy, he sexually harasses all these women, and then he only gets $40 million. Is there no justice in the world? <laughs> now, clearly, I'm being facetious, but to get $40 million, and this is just what he would make up through 2018, it's just insane. It proves that, you know, there's no justice in the world to do something wrong and then to be rewarded for it when you step down, it's sickening. What are you going to do with all that money? $40 million. Many people couldn't spend that in one lifetime, and that's what you would have just made through 2018. It's mind-blowing to me. So this is a creep. This is someone who will never, ever see any consequences for his actions. So a question now that I think is really important is what will the ramifications of this be on Fox News? Because since they became a full-time propaganda outlet for the Republican Party, uh, they've done immeasurable damage to the country. I mean, they have converted and brainwashed so many people. They fear-mongered. They've helped uh, to race bait and produce more bigotry throughout the country. They've done so much damage. So does this mean the station will collapse? Well, I mean, that's up in the air. Uh, there are many people that work for Fox News, such as Greta Van Susteren, who didn't state whether or not they would continue with the company after this occurred, uh, because this is honestly a PR disaster, even though he's stepping down. But Will Fox News collapse? Well, we can hope that is going to be the case, but even if it does, there's going to be an equivalent that will pop up and take its place because, you know, this is a free market, and guess who's number one? Fox News. There are, there are enough stupid people in the country that will watch them religiously enough to the point that, you know, they can actually, they can stay alive. So in the end, who knows what's going to come about due to this? He stepped down, but, uh, you know, this isn't, honestly surprising given his character already. We knew he was a bad guy, but this just, you know, further compounds that belief uh, that we correctly had. But in terms of what's going to happen to Fox News, who knows, but we can only hope that they fall flat on their faces for all the damage that they did for decades to this country. 
Hillary Clinton has officially announced her vice presidential running mate, and that individual is Senator from Virginia, Tim Kaine. Now, there is exactly zero people excited about this, and Hillary Clinton, I mean, you've got to give credit where credit is due. She has found so many different ways to give progressives the middle finger, and this is yet one more way that she is doing that, because if you are curious about Tim Kaine and whether or not he's going to be progressive, well, let me just tell you right now. So, not only is he in favor of bank deregulation, but he is in favor of of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. In fact, recently he was just praising it. And furthermore, this individual is personally pro-life. Now that's fine, that's the same as Joe Biden's stance on abortion, but regardless if he's personally pro-life, unlike Joe Biden, it seems as though when he was governor of Virginia, well, his pro-life views actually influenced his policy because he supported the informed consent laws which requires women seeking abortions to submit to medically unnecessary ultrasounds, according to Slate. I'll put the link in the description box. And furthermore, he once supported abstinence-only sex education. He also supported a parental consent law which requires teens seeking an abortion to get the consent of their parents. So, I'm sure that Planned Parenthood is incredibly proud of their endorsement of Hillary Clinton during the primaries instead of Bernie Sanders, right? But here's what's great about him. Apparently, Senator Tim Kaine made history by delivering a speech on the Senate floor in Spanish. That's right, he is fluent in Spanish. So, <laughs> you better get excited if you weren't excited before, because, I mean, he speaks Spanish, guys. He might want to deregulate the banks and crash the economy, but you know what? He speaks Spanish, so, uh... I guess that that's all that matters? I mean, I, I don't know if Hillary Clinton could have picked someone more boring. Now, Elizabeth Warren should be feeling really stupid right now because she decided to throw her career away and piss off her own base by endorsing Hillary Clinton in hopes that she would be chosen as the VP pick. But when Wall Street tightened the lease on Hillary Clinton and said, if you choose her, you're going to lose us, Elizabeth Warren didn't realize that like Hillary Clinton always does, she decided to listen to her donors. So, absolutely nobody is really surprised that Hillary Clinton would pick a spineless, centrist, corporatist Democrat like Tim Kaine. Now, Hillary Clinton is refusing to speak about the DNC leak, so she conveniently decided to name her VP pick at, you know, the time when the DNC is under complete and utter national scrutiny. Well, let me tell you this about Tim Kaine. I don't give a damn about Tim Kaine. Hillary Clinton could literally pick Jesus Christ as her running mate, and that still would not get me to vote for her, especially after today. So if Hillary Clinton thinks this is going to do anything to help her campaign, it's not. It's going to be a detriment to her campaign, because Donald Trump is now going to say you and your pro-banking buddy, Tim Kaine, well, you're just in it for yourselves. You're both pro-establishment. You are both in this for your donors. And guess what? He'd be damn right to say that. You know, there are a few choices that I think would have been worse than Tim Kaine, but I mean, she really dug down to the bottom of the barrel and she chose the worst of what America has to offer in terms of Democratic vice presidential running mates. So kudos to Hillary Clinton, uh, because any hopes left of party unity are now dashed, and when she inevitably 
cries about party unity, when the DNC cries about party unity at the DNC convention in Philadelphia, well, just know that this VP pick of Tim Kaine, not only is it a sign that she doesn't care about progressives, but it's a sign that she is really, really arrogant. She thinks that she doesn't even have to appeal appeal to the base. She doesn't have to choose a progressive. Any pick that she would have chosen wouldn't change my opinion on voting for her. Still, if somebody is going to potentially be the president of the U.S. or the vice president of the U.S., I do care, including Donald Trump. I care about who he picks as well, even though I never vote for him either, because this person is going to be very powerful. So Hillary Clinton, she went pro-corporate all the way, but is anyone surprised? Not at all. So Tim Kaine is a terrible pick, and it's a failed attempt to distract us from the real story that has been revealed today, and that is that the DNC is in fact corrupt. So how about the mainstream media outlets talk about that instead? Because this isn't surprising. That is what matters. Well, that brings this episode to a close. I don't have any more stories to cover, but I want to thank all of you if you made it this far in the episode uh, for tuning in every single week. I want to thank all of my Patreon patrons, all of the members, all of the people who donate on YouTube. I can't see their names to thank them. As far as I know, I could be wrong, but I need to figure out how to work YouTube better, so to speak. We all, you know, we saw that this was demonstrated that I'm not very YouTube savvy when I did a live show for my 25,000 subscriber Q&A and I couldn't figure out how to activate the chat. So uh, look, thank you to everyone. That's, that's the main point. I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>